out your Bibles. We're back in Philemon this week, so New Testament, find Hebrews, take a left. It's only one page long, can't miss it. We're back in Philemon. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 22, so essentially the rest of the letter this morning. Hear God's word. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending, him, sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So... If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray by it this morning that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would transform us, that you would change us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So about the turn of the new year, I have to confess that my wife and I have been very addicted to a game called Wordle. Some of y'all are laughing, so I know that there's some Wordle fans in the room. So if you've never heard of Wordle before, it's this game on a website where you get six guesses to guess the word of the day. It's a five-letter word, and when you enter your first word, uh, you are told whether or not a letter is in the word by a yellow square, or the letter is in the word and in the correct spot by a green square. And what's been funny to me as we have played Wordle now for probably going on three months every single day is these kind of unspoken rules and habits that Wordle players have. So, for example, if you go on Facebook, I know some of y'all have seen these just random, like, green and yellow block stacks that are put up. Uh, and it is habit, or maybe even, like, etiquette, when you see one of these, that you also post your results in the comment section. So you'll see one of these posts, and you can just scroll and see about 10 or 12 of these result stacks uh, following. It's also respectful, or it's not also respectful, but it seems to be the habit that if you spoil the word of the day on social media, so if you somehow hint at it or you spoil it, you're going to get a firestorm in the comment section. 
Uh, and also, uh, the rules tend to state, and there are people who kind of hold to this, where it's only a valid solve. So you're only doing the puzzle right if, if you find out a letter, you have to use that letter in subsequent guesses. So if you choose to go a totally different way to find out more letters, it's just not valid, and you haven't followed Wordle, and they're going to let you know about it. And maybe the one day in the Wordle kind of community that was the most firestorm was there was this kind of unspoken rule that there would never be a double letter in the word. There would never be a double letter. And so in the middle of January, the word null was the word of the day, K-N-O-L-L. And it forced Wordle players to basically redefine everything they thought about what this game was like. See, Wordle has unspoken rules, unspoken habits. For some of y'all, that didn't make any sense at all because you're not a part of the community. But that's kind of the baseline function of community, isn't it? They give forms. They give rhythms. They give habits. They give members of the community solidarity with each other. See, community gives structure. Community teaches us. Community forms us. Community shapes us. You see, communities are nothing without their habits. And so as we turn again to Philemon this morning, we enter into the problem of this letter directly. We read the first seven verses last week. And the summary of this letter is that Paul is asking for Philemon, who owned a slave named Onesimus, to forgive Onesimus for running away and to welcome him home as a fellow brother. And so last week, we looked at the characteristics of the redeemed community that Paul and Philemon are a part of, right? They have a common purpose. They have a common knowledge. They have common encouragement. And that is the foundation of their life together. Everything that happens in this letter is built on that foundation. And so now as we zoom in today, what we're going to notice is that Paul is acting in a way that ought to be habitual for those who have been redeemed by Christ. He's acting in a way that ought to be habitual for those who have been redeemed by Christ. See, the way that Paul addresses Philemon and the way throughout the letter that he's going to put himself out on the line speaks to what the habits of it, what it looks like to live life together in the body of Christ. See, community that is transformed by Christ is going to look different than community that is built by the world. Community that is transformed by Christ is going to look different than community that has been formed by the world. So the question that I want us to ask this morning is, what are the habits that form Paul and Philemon and subsequently us as we live life together? What are the habits that form our life together? What are the nuts and the bolts of actually living life together for the glory of God? So let's turn to the text and see how Paul answers that question. The first thing we see is that Paul lives a ministry of servanthood. A ministry of servanthood. So go to verse 8, and there's a very important verse here that sets the tone for the entire rest of the passage. And Paul begins by noting that Philemon, he ought to listen to Paul on the basis of his authority. Right? He says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. And it's important to note in this story that Paul is an apostle. See, Paul has special authority. He's designated by God to reveal God's word as written in the New Testament. The apostles were the ones who were writing the New Testament at the time. So Paul 
has special access to God's revelation so he can participate in the authoring of Scripture. And so think about it. That gives a little special oomph to anything that Paul says because Paul has special access to God's revelation as an apostle, right? He kind of is in the place to be able to tell you what to do. But notice in this letter, he does not do that. He has the authority to command Philemon, but he doesn't use that authority. And instead, he appeals for love's sake. He appeals for love's sake. It's out of love that he asks Philemon to welcome home Onesimus. And I don't want us to miss this massive point when we're talking about life together. Because Paul, who has the most authority of any church leader at this time, maybe at any time and in any place, besides Jesus himself, who knows what God wants in this situation because he has access to God's revelation. He is in the place to be able to require and demand so that the outcome has the proper ending. Right? He's able to make sure that the right thing happens. And yet, what does he do? He lays all of the authority down. And he approaches Philemon as an equal, as a fellow brother. You see, he lays down the authority and he picks up the form of a servant. And not only that, but look a little bit further down in verse 10, right? How does Paul talk about Onesimus? He talks about Philemon as a brother, but how does he talk about Onesimus? Talks about him becoming his spiritual father, and he references Onesimus as his child, right? The guilty slave, the one who ran away, the one who doesn't deserve grace, he is being called a spiritual son of the apostle. And as an aside, because oftentimes as Western readers, when we read about a slave in scripture, it can kind of get our minds running. Uh, we can't think about slavery in the Greco-Roman world as chattel slavery, like you would have seen in the transatlantic slave trade. This wasn't inhumane, and this wasn't as disgusting uh, as you would have seen back then. But I don't want to miss the point that Onesimus would have been forced to work, and that Philemon did own Onesimus. So as Paul is lowering himself to Philemon's level, catch the drift, Paul is also lowering himself to Onesimus' level. And in this way, Paul is even slowly subverting slavery here. But this habit that Paul shows, it is so important. Paul has authority, but lays it down out of love. And he approaches each of his brothers as equals, as fellow brothers in Christ, right? They're all important to God's body, and Paul addresses them as such. And how important is that? When we consider life together, because we live in a time and a culture that is more hierarchical, more authority-driven, and also more divisive than at any point in human history, right? We are constantly watching and seeing everyone play the power game. How can I get what I want? How can I get what I need to accomplish my goals? And yet here, Paul notes the significance of each person, Philemon and Onesimus, and what he, he's not going to play the power game to get what he wants. See, rather than lead from the front, Paul is shepherding from behind. See, Paul is making himself the least here so that others feel loved and empowered. And isn't that the way of Christ? Think about the Gospels. When James and John are arguing 
about who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand in heaven, and Jesus shuts them down. Why did he do that? Because the habit of life together in the body of Christ is that we constantly make less of ourselves so that we can make others greater. The habit is that we constantly make less of ourselves so that we can make others greater. As Romans 12 says, we ought to outdo one another in showing honor. We ought to outdo one another in showing honor. You see, the challenge in life together is that there are going to be leaders and there are going to be followers. But the goal is not to lead from the front, but the goal is to serve from the back. See, in the World Mission Conference, we all heard that we all have gifts. We all have a place in God's story. We're all serving the kingdom of God. You see, there isn't one person in this room who is more important or less important in God's kingdom, right? I might have the microphone right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm greater in the kingdom of God. See, an elder isn't necessarily greater than a deacon. An officer isn't necessarily greater than a congregation member. You see, authority is given for service. And life together will be healthy when we use our authority, when we use the times when we're put in charge or our times of leadership, not to manipulate, not to lead and get our own way, but to serve. See, as Paul recognized Philemon and Onesimus as equals, and dwelt, or dealt appropriately. So when we live life together, we outdo one another in showing honor. We make ourselves less so that others might thrive. So that's the ministry of servanthood. Second, ministry of interruption. Ministry of interruption. So if you jump to verse 15, uh, I think you find what I, I would deem the most convincing and most convicting part of this text. Right? Paul makes a hypothetical statement. And this hypothetical statement is about the purpose of why God, why God would allow in his providence for Onesimus to run away. He says this, perhaps this is why he was parted from you, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. I want you to think about this for a second. See, generally slaves in this time period, they would follow more along the lines of what we would call an indentured servant. That means they were usually financially in debt. They couldn't get themselves out of debt. So what they would do is they would sell themselves into slavery, and they would work for a time, make up their debts, and then they would receive their freedom after a given time. So think about this. Philemon has a big investment in Onesimus. Not only is Onesimus labor that he's not getting anymore, but by running away, he's essentially taken whatever money Philemon has put into him. He's hurt Philemon some way in his wrongdoing. We don't know what that is, but he's hurt Philemon in some way. And not only that, but he's embarrassed Philemon in front of the watching world. If I might understate that for a second, that is extremely, extremely inconvenient for Philemon. And yet here is Paul saying that God might have allowed this to happen so that something greater might happen. That the relationship might change. Onesimus might no longer be a bondservant but a brother, and useful to both Paul and Philemon. Perhaps the interruption, the inconvenience, 
the embarrassment, the difficulty. Maybe it's Paul had a purpose. And in our life together, one of the most one of the hardest possible tendencies to break is that it's easy to live and love and be together in community just so long as it conveniences ourselves. And as soon as it becomes difficult, as soon as it means that we have to become more deeply involved, the second we realize that, you know, our priorities and our hopes and our expectations, they might have to get thrown out because I need to be present with this person or I need to step into this situation, that's when community becomes tough. See, we love what community gives going back to last week, but when it asks much of us, that's a different story. I want to share a personal example about how I learned this lesson. Uh, and so in Orlando, the church I worked for previously, we had a really prominent homeless population. And we had a ministry called Compassion Corner that uh, through our church, we would do coffee and devotions uh, for the homeless population in the area. And so one morning I got asked uh, to do the devotion at Compassion Corner. Our missions pastor, uh, he was going to be away on paternity leave, so he couldn't uh, do it. So I said, sure. Well, the week of the devotion comes around, uh, and it turned out that I had a pile of seminary work that I just had to get done. It was, you know, I had no other time to do it. So I start looking at my schedule, and I start looking for ways to be able to, you know, throw things off so that I would have the time to be able to do the work that I had to do. And I see this breakfast sitting on my calendar, and I'm like, perfect. I'll get someone else to do the breakfast, and I can bail on this breakfast. And I'm not proud of that, but at the time, what was going through my head was I need space to get what I need to get done. And this breakfast, this is just an unneeded interruption in my day. And as soon as I said that in my head, <laughs> the guilt just washed over me. And I ended up doing the breakfast because of that guilt. You see, here I was saying, you know what, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to step in. I'm willing to do, you know, something good just so long as it fits my schedule. Just so long as it fits my needs. But if serving others becomes an inconvenience for me, if it becomes challenging for me, if it makes uncomfortable, it stretches me, you know what, I don't think I'm going to participate in that. You see, life together is great, just so long as it doesn't impede on my life alone. Life together is great, just so long as it doesn't impede on my life alone. And yet transformative community, interruption, is often the blessing of God. See, there are going to be moments where someone needs help, and it's going to require you to step in. There are going to be moments of service where you have to give of time aren't necessarily wanting to give. And yet when we do that, we see that God is at work in life together. See, God is at work in the simple. God is at work in the difficult. But in order to witness that, we have to be willing to be interrupted, to allow our lives to intersect in such a way where we truly become dependent on one another. And sometimes we're not going to get to reap the reward of our effort, but we're simply going to be contributing to the plant that someday someone else will get to harvest. Life together is full of interruptions. It's full of moments where we die to self 
But in that, in dying to self, we find God's work. He is faithful, and when we allow ourselves to be interrupted, to turn our eyes from ourselves to one another, we get to participate in God's work of grace. So, habit of servanthood, habit of interruption, and then the final one quickly is a habit of openness. Habit of openness. Paul's final habit comes in verse 17. And just to paraphrase, charge me anything that Onesimus has done wrong. Charge me anything that Onesimus has done wrong. Let me stand in his place. See, Paul understands at the end of this letter that for relationship to happen, for reconciliation to occur, he knows that justice has to be done. He knows that justice has to be done, and he knows there has to be a payment. But he says, don't charge Onesimus even though he's guilty. Rather, charge me. I'll take the brunt of Onesimus' punishment. And so part of life together means that we're naturally going to hurt each other. There are going to be times when we do wrong by one another. And because sin is in the world, that's assured. However, what drives us to division, what drives us to anger, what destroys life together, and this is extremely important, what destroys life together is when we value justice over relationship. When we're wronged, we want to be right rather than reconciled. See, what Paul realizes here is that Onesimus has wronged Philemon, and, Phi and the barrier to reconciliation is actually a righteous thing. If Philemon wants justice in this situation, he deserves to get justice. However, what's going to happen is if Philemon gets justice here, it's going to sever the relationship. See, justice means that Onesimus will return to being a slave. But Paul envisions something greater. Paul envisions Onesimus returning as a brother, and that requires grace. And that's not too far off from the gospel, is it? See, justice in our relationship with God, justice requires separation. We're condemned by sin, and justice means that we all deserve to die. See, God is holy, and we're not, and we had a price to pay. But grace, brought by Jesus, meant reconciliation. You see, Jesus stood in our place, and he took the punishment that we owed so that we might receive more than justice. We receive a relationship. And I don't want you to hear me saying that justice is not important, because justice is essential. God is a God of justice. But he's not only a God of justice. And so that leads us into this habit of openness, right? So often, and I would put myself in this camp too, so often we look to be right and not together. But the gospel life compels us to be together and not necessarily right. It's why all of the issues that we deal with today, from in Washington to the separations and divisions in your town and in your family, right? We want justice, but we ought to desire relationship. 
2 Corinthians 5 says, we haven't been given the ministry of judgment. That doesn't belong to you. But 2 Corinthians 5 says, you have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes, like Paul showed, sometimes in order to create reconciliation, it may mean that we have to be open to being hurt. It may mean we have to be open to forgiveness, open to listening, to learning, to loving others, open to say that our wills and our desires are actually secondary to the body, right? Paul is about to take a punishment that isn't his so that Philemon and Onesimus can be reconciled. And when a community together lives like that, willing to sacrifice themselves for each other, that's power. As I close, um, this past week, I read an article on a sports website of all places. And I ended up sharing this article on Facebook if you want to go track it down. Um, But it's titled, Does My Son Know You? Does My Son Know You? And I ended up sharing it uh, because I just thought it was so powerful. And it's to give you a summary written by a father who's terminally ill with cancer, and he has a two-year-old son. Uh, And as he is slowly dying, he's writing about the power of community. And he tells about this one night in his church where he showed up to this small group thinking it was going to be extremely cheesy, and later he would come to admit that it has become the rock of his life. But the author's writing in a lot of pain because the author had lost his dad to Parkinson's early on in his life. And they were there right at the beginning of his dad's treatment. Um, But then they slowly faded away. But they would resurge again at the funeral, and they came up and offered their condolences. And the son makes the comment and goes, I didn't know any of them. So he's writing this to his current community, and he writes this line. The question I will ask my friends when they get to heaven is this. Did my son know you? Were you there for him? Did you show up to his games? Did it get to the point where he thought it was weird that all of his dad's friends were around so much? Did my son know you? That, That life requires openness. That requires interruption. That requires giving of yourself to love and serve. And I read that, and I'm like, I want to be somebody who would answer a call like that. And I think we all do. But what does that take? That takes the habits of living life together. One that draws us into a life that's not for ourselves, but ultimately for each other. One where we are known and know each other. Not in just a passing simple way, but one that feels a little bit like eternity that's come just a bit early, right? When we live life together and we live it right, we echo the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. And you know we need community to thrive. You didn't create us to be alone. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would draw us into this community. Lord, would we not focus on ourselves, but would we focus on each other? Would we love each other, lay down our own lives in the sake of service and interruption? Lord, we are thankful that you know what we need. 
and we're thankful for the people who sit alongside us that we get to do life with. We ask that you bless us. In Jesus' name.